Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. The Healthcare Sterile Processing Association, HSPA, invites you to log on, listen and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome to the Process This Podcast. This is episode number 82. Thanks for joining me. Today we are speaking with James Schneider about surgical instruments, IFUs, 510Ks, FDA, all the things. It's a packed show, so let's not waste any time and let's get into our interview. Jim, thank you for being on the show today. Hey, it's my pleasure, John. Appreciate you inviting me. Jim, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do? Um, Very quickly, after getting my master's in finance from Southern in 1974, I know that sounds like a long time ago, it (laughs) really was, started my career with American Hospital Supply Corporation, which um, folks who might not know that name, they merged with uh, Baxter back in 1985. But for the past uh, 38 years, I've been the president and owner of America's MedSource. And we are in the business of designing, developing, licensing, and marketing, primarily implantable access devices, central venous catheters, dialysis catheters, and systems for patients with cancer, pleural effusions, ascites, and other chronic long-term illnesses. We also design validated laparoscopic and neurosurgical instruments, and my designs seek to improve patient care, ease of use, uh, most importantly, improve outcomes. I hold a lot of U.S. patents, uh, foreign patents, trademarks, copyrights. I've been involved in numerous IDE filings, FDA product approval meetings, hospital and office-based clinical trials, 510K filings, independent laboratory studies. Um, I'm also pretty recognized uh, as uh, knowing more about independent laboratory validations of IFUs. And I'm also one of the original co-founders of hashtag IFUCAN, and we can talk about that a little later. I'm quoted frequently in medical publications, newspapers, uh, had several articles, six articles published within just the last six, uh, no, last three years. So that's a little bit about my background and who I am and what I do. So I think it's safe to say that you know your stuff when it comes to instruments and FDA and all those uh, 510Ks and stuff like that. Uh, That's a safe (laughs) assumption, John. (laughs) So when we spoke earlier, you told me about a story that you have about a friend who had a complication during surgery. Do you mind talking about that situation with us today? I'll I'll be happy to. This occurred about 20 years ago. And again... um, my primary focus, America's MedSource primary focus over the years, has been more vascular than surgical instrumentation. I, I, I literally stumbled into surgical instrumentation based on what happened to a friend of mine. He went in for routine uh, lap colic, uh, wound up with a deep organ surgical site infection. It became septic. He almost died. He was hospitalized for almost two months. Wow. I had recently solved the problem of the buildup of thrombus blood and drug residuals inside 
the reservoir of vascular access ports, uh, like a port catheter or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I used, I, my, my thought process was, well, could it have been the laparoscopic instruments that caused the surgical infection in my friend? So I went to a couple of hospitals in the local area and I got some damaged and broken lap instruments that they were going to just throw away. And I ground down the side of the shaft of the uh, lap instrument. Every one that I opened up was full of contaminated bio burden. Mm. And it occurred to me that, okay, the same fluid dynamics that I used to solve the problem in vascular access ports, I could, I could design a lap instrument that would solve that problem so that when it was flushed, there were no corners or dead spaces so that the flush would actually remove all of the bio burden and biofilm. And that's what led me to come up with my own line of um, laparoscopic instruments. And having solved that problem with lap instruments, several friends talked to me about Kerosene Rangeurs, which is clearly the most contaminated instrument in a uh, neuro case. Mm-hmm. So I worked on solving that problem, and I, I solved that problem about 15 years ago or so. Well, that's great. But it all started with my friend almost dying from a contaminated instrument. Wow. So a few months ago, I did a podcast about IFUs. And on that podcast, I, I essentially looked over three different IFUs. And in my opinion, they were vastly different from each other. Now, does that surprise you at all? Not in the least. And uh, in preparation for our discussion, I pulled up the IFUs for the three largest lap instrument manufacturers in the country. And I won't <laughs> divulge <laughs> which ones I'm looking at, but sure. let me give you an, an example here. Manufacturer number one under cleaning, their first step is, quote, maintain moisture immediately after the surgical procedure, place the instruments in an instrument tray or container, cover it with a towel moistened with sterile distilled water. Foam spray or gel products are available to keep the soil moist for transport. Now that's one. Mm -hmm. Let me go to the second manufacturer at point of use. If applicable, rinse non-visible surfaces using a disposable syringe. Remove any visible surgical residue as much as possible. Place the dry product in a sealed waste container and forward it on for cleaning and disinfection within six hours. Ooh. <laughs> All right. Uh, and that's this is one of the top three lab manufacturers. Okay. Let me go to the third one for pre-processing. Quote, initiate cleaning of device within two hours of use. Hmm. Transport devices via the institution's established transport procedure, whatever that is. That was like an editorial comment. And remove excess gross soil as soon as possible by using a rinse or a wiping device, close quotes. So those are the three top lap manufacturers and their IFUs. Just the first step, pre-cleaning. And they're all different. Yeah. They're that's, all different. It's crazy. And and you go, okay, I'm down in SPD. I know I was chatting with the um, manager of the SPD at Johns Hopkins 
hospital a number of years ago. And she related to me that they processed between 15 and 18,000 instruments per day. Mm. And the, when you look <clears throat> at IFUs like this, the frustration level has to be off the charts. Yep, and, and it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. You've got, an, you've got the responsibility of returning clean, sterile, moisture-free instruments back to the surgical suite. And yet you're dealing with IFUs that are of little value. And worst of all, they've never been validated. Yeah, you can see how it can be difficult, especially when you're you're trying to follow the IFUs and then you have three different ones and you know, you have a surveyor or somebody saying, Why aren't you following the IFUs? And you know, here's here's a great example. Well, they're all confusing. Yeah, they're all different. They're all different. And more importantly, I come back to the same point. They have never been validated. Mm. You know, right now, I think one of the most misused and misunderstood words in our industry is validated when you're talking about IFUs. Um, a lot of instrument manufacturers state that their IFUs have been validated. But when you read the IFU, all they actually say is their instruments were, quote, sterilized, close quotes. Uh. given temperature, time, and pressure. Well, John, <laughs> what they're really validating is the fact that the sterilization indicator turned, indicating that the conditions were right for sterilization. It has nothing to do with whether or not the instrument was free of bio-burden and biofilm after processing. And that's the rub. And, and that brings me into my next question is, you know, how does that process work in the industry? You know, let's let's t say if we had a new kerosene, how does the company manufacturer validate that instrument? Well, luckily, that's pretty well spoken for by the FDA. Um, if you go to, you know, let's see here. I can pull it up quickly, I think. To, to, to validate a cleaning IFU. You need a minimum, and this is both the FDA protocol and Amy's protocol, AAMI protocol. You need a sample of three or more instruments along with an additional instrument to serve as the control. This is the old scientific method. <laughs> the instruments have to be thoroughly contaminated with artificial test soil prior to starting the cleaning process. And then what the lab does, who's doing this, and it has to be done by an independent lab. And... This isn't a plug because I have no connection with them, but Nelson Labs is probably the biggest, if not the biggest, yes. independent uh, lab testing company in the, in the United States. Once they're contaminated, the laboratory who's doing the validation testing follows the cleaning steps on the manufacturer's IFUs. And after they're concluding their the steps of the reprocessing. Then the lab samples the instruments and tests for residual bio burden and biofilm. And then they present those results in the um, validation table of the report. So the good news is it's not the manufacturer who sets up the criteria. It's already been set up. The testing criteria has been set up by the FDA and Amy so that every company that does 
a true validation of their cleaning IFUs, they're using the same test. Okay. So, so that you can compare one set of IFUs to another in terms of the validation testing. Um, again, without naming names, two different companies on lap instruments, and I have copies of the Nelson Lab reports. One, following their cleaning instructions after cleaning, still retained, well, they removed 80, uh, excuse me, 98.5% of the bio load. Well, that means 1.5%, <laughs> that's 1,500 parts per 100,000 of biofilm that's that's the bio burden that's crazy yeah and another one had 99.92 percent removed which is essentially a, a sterile instrument so again it's not just enough to have the validation done then you have to compare well what kind of results can we expect in our facility based on the validation studies once they do that, once they do that validation, who writes the IFUs for the manufacturer? And then, you know, why are they so different? Oh, that's a great question. IFUs tend to be, first of all, if, if anyone who spent some time looking at that IFUs has discovered it, they all tend to read pretty much the same thing. You know, pre-soak, uh, at point of their use, um, transport with a moist towel or something, cover them or clean them, visually inspect them on and down the line. Well, the problem is there's, there's, there's really two types of IFUs and most IFUs are created by plagiarism. Hmm. I mean, that might sound like a strong <laughs> statement, but it's true. If you put a whole bunch of them side by side on the table, you go, well, wait a minute, this looks like a bunch of, you know frat fraternity boys who put together the same uh, thesis over and over again, or the same paper over and over again. Essentially, too many companies merely copy a competitor's IFU and they change the name, they put their own name on it. Mm. And again, if you, if, you, if you set down, take lap instruments or take Kerasons or take Ronger, take whatever product category and look at the various manufacturers and the IFUs read pretty much the same. Now, if the IFU is created by a regulatory expert at that company, it'll probably be identical to the competitors because if everyone is saying the same thing, it's hard to get a case against the manufacturer. Now, if the IFU is created by a marketing person within that company, that IFU is going to spend a lot of words talking about how their product is totally different from the competitor's product. <laughs> well, you know, products aren't sold down in SPD. The folks in SPD are concerned with patient safety, and they need an IFU that has been validated so that when they go through the steps in the IFU, they have a high degree of confidence that they're returning a clean, sterile, moisture-free instrument back to surgery, period. And in the absence of having the IFUs validated, there's really no assurance. I mean, you can do all the steps right. Um, a number of years ago, there was an outbreak of CRE in several hospitals around the country. Mm -hmm. uh, Lutheran General happened to be one down in um, Park Ridge, Illinois. I know the SPD manager who was there at the time. 
and they were following verbatim the steps on the manufacturer's IFUs of mm-hmm. those scopes. And what came out in, I think it was August of 2015, the FDA issued a warning letter to all of the big scope manufacturers saying, hey, you guys need to review your IFUs because a ton of people are coming up with CRE because these scopes can't be cleaned properly. There was a big outbreak at Virginia Mason in Seattle and several other hospitals uh, off the top of my head. Long and short of it, Olympus set aside $75 million against their earnings to pay for liability cases that they expected to uh, be held accountable for. Wow. And this was the first time in my career that I ever saw the FDA chastise a manufacturer for not having validated their IFUs when at that moment in time there was not a requirement to validate your IFUs. So that's the first time there was a regulatory action against manufacturers for not doing something that they weren't (laughs) required to do. Um, It wasn't until March of 2015 that the FDA finally said all new product submissions Included in the 510K submission, and 510K is merely what the, that's the form that the FDA calls for filling out when you're asking for permission to market a new product. Mm -hmm. That all 510K submissions now have to contain a set of validated cleaning instructions to go with the product. Well, that's wonderful moving forward, but my guess is off the top of my head, probably 98, 99% of all instruments that are being reprocessed on a daily basis were approved long before 2015. So the dirty secret in our industry continues to be that the vast majority of surgical instruments, more importantly, the vast majority of reusable medical devices, not just surgical instruments, their cleaning IFUs have never been validated. So it's kind of like they were grandfathered in. Is that is that what I'm hearing? That's exactly it. Um, I was at one of the many meetings with the FDA and Amy folks out in D.C. when we were working on changing all this. And the question always put to the FDA was, well, are you going to make it mandatory that everyone who currently has products in the marketplace, that they have to go back and validate their IFUs? And the response was the cost would be prohibitive and they're not going to do it. Mm. Um, And, you know, again, several of us pushed hard that that should be required. And my assumption, this is just my personal assumption, is that uh, enough players, enough manufacturers were successful in convincing, lobbying the uh, FDA that this would be too burdensome to do. That's just my personal opinion sure. based on no knowledge, okay? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that was a good enough disclaimer for you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, let's go ahead and pause for just a second. Are you looking to get a CE for this episode? To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, log on to the My HSPA website, and make sure you use the code 510K. 
Again, the code for this specific episode is 510K. Now, let's get back to our conversation. So let's kind of use our kerosene again scenario. So let's say a manufacturer has their new their kerosene, and we talked about a 510K. Is, is that all that's required for the FDA to bring that kerosene to market? Well, they have to approve it. Now, the 510K is a, is a, is a fairly significant form, and there's a lot that goes into it. You have to describe how the product's used. You have to describe predicate devices and, and you know the use of a predicate device is probably one of the more abused parts of the 510k process when I say abused um, I was involved in getting one of the first 510ks for an implantable vascular access device this was back in 19, 1988 I believe off the top of my head and what we filed for as a predicate device was an Omayan reservoir, which was implanted in the brain, as you may know. And that product had been out for, I don't know, 25 years or more. Let's be honest, John. Um, the correlation between an Omayan reservoir in the brain and a vascular implantable port in the chest with the catheter going into the superior vena cava of the heart I, I still can't believe we were able to uh, float that one and get it approved <laughs> that they were similar devices. Now, again, this was a long time ago, mm -hmm. and they've tightened up the process quite a bit. But again, I'm dating myself in 1976 when the FDA first came up with the requirement of a predicate device. Of that, that's when they first came out with the 510K approval process. They said that, okay, anything that's already in the market, we're going to grandfather in, but you have to have proof, excuse me, you have to have approval from the FDA. At that time, I was a product manager with American Hospital Supply Corporation. We had 32,000 items in our catalog, 32,000 SKUs. Huh. John, we sent the whole catalog in, and the FDA approved it. Wow. I mean, there was no way they had the staff to go through and look at every device. Now, there was tons of items in there that are they're no-brainers. We're talking, you know, gauze 4 by 4s and emesis basins, and, uh, you know, the list is endless. But mm -hmm. nonetheless, the, the process has improved dramatically. Uh, and again, not to make this a history lesson, but if you go back to 1960, there was a drug that was imported. Uh, from Germany called thalidomide, and it was for morning sickness in pregnant uh, women. Mm -hmm. And about a year after it was introduced here in the United States, we were having all sorts of babies being born with horrible birth defects. They were called thalidomide babies. And Congress went nuts on the FDA. How did you let this product be sold in the United States without any kind of testing. And that's what really lit the fire under the FDA to suddenly get infinitely more involved in drug approvals. And then later on, they got involved with it morphed into, well, we better be looking at devices as well. Because people were marketing um, pacemakers without any 510Ks. I mean, I, wow. we've come a long way up that way. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> Wow. 
Well, anyhow, I'm, I don't know if I answered your question about how do you go, you've got a new kerosene. Well, you you talk about a predicate device. Kerosene rongeurs have been in the marketplace for, I don't know, 70, 80 years. It's, a, it's an old-style instrument. Yeah. Um, and all you have to do is, is send in validated cleaning instructions. Now, those validated cleaning instructions might show that it's really difficult, if not impossible, to remove all the bio burden and biofilm from the inner workings, the I-beam slide channel of mm-hmm. kerosene. But at least the customer knows that this is what I can expect if I follow the IFUs. The other big digressing just for a moment, you know, we came out with, the industry came out with take apart lap instruments, modular lap instruments about 25 years ago yeah. and take apart kerosene about 15 years ago. And the sales pitch was that, well, I had to take them apart. You could see and visually inspect and remove the bio burden from inside of the instrument. Well, the only problem with that is if you go to ST, uh, Amy ST79, they talk about that visual inspection alone is not adequate. Mm-hmm. The human eye cannot see microscopic bio burden. And more importantly, the human eye, it's impossible to see biofilm. You need an electron microscope to see biofilm on a surface. The reason, the real reason, the hidden reason that the manufacturers came out with take apart lap instruments 20 plus years ago was because hospitals had a capital budget ceiling of $500. And anything that cost more than $500 had to go to the Capital Appropriations Committee. By selling a, a take-apart instrument, you could charge four ninety-five for the handle, you could charge another three or four hundred bucks for the shaft and jaw, or however the combination worked, so that the instrument manufacturers could get around and avoid their products having to be approved by the Capital Budget Committee in the hospital. Wow. That's the honest reason why people came up with modular take-apart lap and kerosens and other other instruments and you know more importantly the real question that people should ask is hey we're spending a huge amount of time money and effort with take apart instruments why are we doing it where are the studies that show that take apart instruments have reduced surgical infection rates and there aren't any studies john hmm I mean, think about it. If there were any studies that proved in a major medical institution facility that their conversion to take apart lap instruments had reduced lap procedure infections, that study would be plastered on the wall of every surgeon's lounge <laughs> in every hospital in the country. We know that. There's not one study. Huh. And the reason there's not one study is there's, there's no correlation. Just because you take apart, and, and that's assuming people remember to take it apart to yeah. begin with. And that's another dirty little secret that we all know about. And a lot of take apart instruments, there's no way just looking at them that you would tell or know that it's a take apart. Hmm. You know, 50 plus years ago on the anaerobic side of the business, on the nutrition side of our business, we color coded. Anything that has to do with anaerobic formula, orange. 
so that there was no mistake an orange pump was for the gut and a white pump was for intravenous. Okay. We did that, you know, like I say, probably 50 years ago. Why we've never color-coded take-apart instruments is beyond me. To at least give people down in SPD a fighting chance <laughs> of knowing if it's a take-apart. <laughs> That's just my personal opinion. Over the last decade, we have quadrupled the use of antibiotics prophylactically for lab procedures. I don't know how much money hospitals have spent over the last decade to improve sterility in the OR, you know, air filtration systems and on and on down the line. And yet, according to the CDC, the rate of deep organ surgical infections following a lap procedure in the United States has remained steady at about 2% of all cases. Now, that's a stunning number when you think about it. Yeah, that's interesting. And the question is, well, well if we've done all these things, what, what, what's, the, what's, what's causing this? I mean, over the last decade, I think just about every hospital has gone away from reusable trocars on a lap procedure to single-use disposable trocars. Mm -hmm. So that's probably not the source. And you come back to, well, it's that reusable lap instrument that goes from patient to patient to patient. And that tells me that the inability to thoroughly decontaminate and clean and remove all residual bio burden and debris from lap instruments during reprocessing just has not been improved. And again, that's because the vast majority of manufacturers have not validated their cleaning instructions so that hospitals can make a, an informed decision as to whether or not they're using the right lap instruments. Again, I mentioned that one where only 98.5% of the bio burden is removed versus another one where it's 99.8. That's what people really need to be looking at when they look at acquiring new surgical instrumentation. Hey, let me see your validated IFUs. It's no different than looking at the warranty on a new car purchase or any other purchase that you make as a, as a consumer. You want the details. You want the facts about the performance of the product. And people aren't doing that. I think that kind of lends us to this next question is, how are facilities, how are they going to be able to clean these instruments appropriately when, when we have this new instrument? Well, that's the $64 question. <laughs> the answer is, prior to issuing a purchase order, the facility needs to demand a set of validated IFUs from the manufacturer. Now, if the manufacturer can't provide or won't provide a set of validated IFUs, the validation having been followed and done by an independent lab using FDA and Amy testing protocols, then the hospital should look at a different supplier who can and will provide validated IFUs, and this goes beyond, you know, just, just instrumentation. It's any reusable medical device. They have to demand validated IFUs. Otherwise, you go back to, and I'm not picking on Lutheran General, but again, I know the fellows involved with this. You can follow the IFU, the manufacturer's IFU verbatim, and still return a contaminated instrument to surgery. Mm-hmm. So 
in answer to your question, the only way a hospital, a facility, can ensure that they're going to get a clean, sterile, moisture-free instrument after every processing cycle is to only use instrumentation that's been validated to return what you're looking So I do have one last question for you. Sure. So you belong, and you spoke to this uh, earlier, previously at the beginning of the podcast, that you belong to a group called, it's hashtag IFU can. Can you talk about that? Can you talk about uh, what that is and how folks can be involved in IFU can? Well, sure. All you need to do is jump onto uh, LinkedIn and hashtag IFU can. We're right there. Um, Several of us, Oh, I guess it started at uh, one of the meetings back in 2007. We have been pushing for the need for validated IFUs for a long time because we realize and understand that that's the only way a facility can ensure clean, sterile, moisture-free instruments, clean, sterile, moisture-free devices Mm -hmm. after every processing cycle. And we got together and launched uh, this new non-for-profit, non-political, non-non-non-whatever organization. (laughs) (laughs) But we're dedicated to exploring and promoting the pursuit and use of validated IFUs to improve the quality of patient care. Um, it's, It's primarily an online community devoted to SPD and related clinical and administrative professionals. You know along with providers and product manufacturers. And we're involved with, oh, you've read some of the things that we do in uh, healthcare purchasing news or process, and mm-hmm. some of the other organizations, AORN, Amy, etc. I'm one of the uh, original four. Ralph, I don't know, I'm not going to mention the last names here, but um, a VP from uh, Healthmark Industries, sure. uh, VP of another surgical manufacturer, uh, another person who's involved with uh, publication, healthcare publication. And again, it, it, it's nothing secretive. You can go online, you can see all the names and titles and everything. But um, the key here today is we're, it, it's a clearing place. I think there's over 100 articles that are posted on the site that relate to not just cleaning instructions, but all sorts of very important information for SPD professionals, number one. It's a great way to exchange ideas. You can learn from uh, successful examples of practices and procedures and and how to go after making changes in your own facility, suggestions for. It's not enough to know that you need to have products that is have had their IFUs validated. How, if I'm in the trenches down in the basement in SPD, how do I get that message out? And there's different ways to approach that, and we cover some of those on the site. But our vision is, more than anything, to improve patient outcomes. You know, patients go to hospitals expecting to get better. And the last thing they expect is to come up would come away with a hospital-acquired infection, a surgical site infection, due to a contaminated instrument. So at the end of the day, that's that's really the ultimate goal of the organization. 
Great. Jim, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for your insight and thank you for being on the show today. John, I appreciate the opportunity and um, don't hesitate to get me involved in something else. I'm, I enjoy sharing the 49 years of industry experience with people. <laughs> Well, that's all the time we have for today. Again, James Schneider, thank you for being on the show and giving us a little bit of insight into your world. HSPA episode number 82 is in the books. Now, if you're looking to get a CE for this episode, all you have to do is log on to the myhspa.org website Fill in the code that was announced during the episode, and there you have it. Free CEs. Hey, guess what? Each episode that we do on this podcast, they're all on demand. So when you're ready for us, the podcast is there for you. And as always, stay classy, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>